It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After this episode, go to ChristianQuestions.com to check out other episodes, Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more. Today's topic is, why doesn't God just destroy Satan? Coming up in this episode, Satan is powerful. His grip on our world seems to be getting to a point of no return. As his evil escalates, many feel like God's power evaporates. So why hasn't God stopped Satan yet? What could he possibly be waiting for? Here's Rick, Jonathan, and Julie. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host for over 20 years, and Julie, a longtime CQ contributor, is also with us. Jonathan, what's our theme scripture for today's episode? 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There are some questions that are just plain difficult. One of those questions that many believers in God may wrestle with has to do with God seemingly allowing Satan to run the show. Let's face it, evil stinks. and We just want it to go away. Yet God has continued to let Satan's influence dominate our world for thousands of years. Most Christians believe that God is absolutely capable of destroying Satan, but begin to fall short when asked why it has not yet happened. Answers touch on God creating all of his spiritual and earthly intelligent beings with free choice. And this is a great start. The key factor in all of this is seeing how God gives each being's free choice the ability to have fair and just choice as well. So let's begin. Let's begin actually by answering the question, why doesn't God just destroy Satan? First of all, God will destroy Satan, but that time has not yet arrived. God's continued allowance for Satan to keep on living is an integral part of his plan to benefit all of his created beings, all of them. It's part of a plan to benefit all his created beings. Satan's rebellion and fall from God's grace serves God's plan in two ways. First, Satan's continued existence and influence serve as an undeniable and unavoidable example of the results of rebellion against God's righteousness. Second, Satan's continued existence and influence serve as the basis for testing each and every one of God's created beings. Every intelligent created being will ultimately choose to stay loyal to God's righteousness or ultimately choose to follow the darkness of Satan. That leads to the question, do we really need to be tested? Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. And the thing is, anything that is going to be in a place of, of, of responsibility, you have an engine that's gonna, that needs to, to, to supply something for long periods of time, you don't just say, hey, let's build it and just put it out there. You build it and you test it. You make sure. You make sure. God built us for eternity. Therefore, tests are absolutely part of the process. We're going to expand this as we go. But we really do want to focus on two things, Satan's existence and his destruction. So those are the kind of two points that we're going to keep going back to. So first of all, regarding Satan's existence and destruction, God uses the rebellion and evil that Satan creates and lives 
to ultimately root out all rebellion and all evil. We're going to let that sink in for a moment. God's plan is revealed in the Bible, and it has past truths, present truths, and future truths that are all necessary for us to comprehend. So we have to be able to look back way into ancient history. We have to look at what's happening now and be able to look in the future. You put it all together, and there you begin to get an understanding. These truths show us Satan's role and destiny. And here's the thing. God is pretty smart, okay? God is like the, the smartest being that you've ever even comprehended. And so he uses Satan's rebellion as a tool. He's so powerful, he's so wise, he can take evil and have it be a tool for ultimate and eternal good. Remember Romans 8:28, all things work together for good. Right, all things. And you know, it's interesting, we look at the Bible as the inspired word of God, and when you say all things, we really mean all things. And you, we'll see that as we go through uh, today's, today's podcast. So let's look at our first present truth. God allows Satan to exist and have power over all of his earthly creation. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. And this is our theme scripture. And even if our gospel is veiled, meaning covered up, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Okay, so the Apostle Paul uh, is, 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 is talking to us about the gospel not being able to be understood. He's making a simple point. The gospel is not able to be recognized by the world. They don't see it. Verse 4. In whose case the God of this world has blinded, meaning to make blind, to obscure, the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, people can't change the fact that they are under Satan's rule. No, you can't. And the beauty of this is God puts this in place. These people who make up the masses of the world have been blinded by Satan. That's what this scripture is plainly saying. Both of these points display the fundamental truth that the gospel is simply shut off from the billions of people in the world. This is a clearer and unfair disadvantage driven by Satan that seems to be okay with the Apostle Paul. Think about it. Many people died before Jesus was even born. So it doesn't seem like much of a plan if all those people are lost through no fault of their own. And this is why we need to look at past truths, present truths, and future truths. Because you put them all together and what seems unfair, un unfair ends up being ultimately wise and profound. And here's the interesting thing. Jesus plainly taught this very thing about the blindness of, of all of the masses. Our next scripture is Jesus explaining the parable of the sower. This parable uses four types of ground. Remember, there's a pathway, a rocky soil, thorny ground, and good soil. But he uses it as a metaphor for people's heart conditions and how they either receive or do not receive the gospel message. We want to cultivate good soil in our hearts in order for God's message to take root. So Jesus starts the lesson in Matthew 13, 18 to 19. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what he has been sown in his heart. This is the one of whom the seed was sown beside the road. 
And so it says Satan snatches it away. It says that Satan has control. He pulls away that which was sown but was not understood. It puts Satan in control. That's what Jesus says. After speaking this parable, Jesus explained a significant principle that drove his teaching. And that's in Mark chapter 4, verses 10 to 12. As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive, and while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. This is a real head-scratcher for a lot of people, because doesn't it seem odd that the Messiah purposely spoke cryptically so that people wouldn't understand him. That doesn't seem to make sense. Presumably he could have just snapped his fingers and given everyone all knowledge, but he didn't. So why would Jesus purposely hide the gospel from so many? Isn't this exactly what Satan wants? Was Jesus falling into Satan's trap? Well, Julie, Jesus has quoted an instruction given to Isaiah and applies that instruction to his own mission. Isaiah 6, 8 to 10. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Now remember, that was being spoken to Isaiah, and Isaiah is responding, but prophetically, that is a picture of Jesus responding and saying, I will go. And then here's the instruction that goes along with, I will go. So Jonathan, let's go back to verses 9 and 10. He said, Go. And tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. So, it does sound odd until you put all of the truths together, the past, present, and future, and we're, we're going down that road. But Jesus... What, what he's showing us is he's clearly following Isaiah's prophetic instruction. He is doing exactly what he's supposed to do to unfold God's plan, which was precise, precise from way back before time began to be counted. So we have to see it in the, in, in the larger picture. And we've got a great CQ Kids video at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube called Why Did Jesus Speak in Parables? And we know that Jesus' mission wasn't to change the hearts of every person he met. He knew that not everyone was going to be a follower or even want to understand. And instead, he was looking for those who wanted to lead better lives, who were hungry for knowledge and truth with a strong desire to understand his message. But did that exclude everybody else? No is the answer, and we're going to get to that shortly. We're going to get to a lot of things shortly, so you got to stay with us because there's a lot coming. Remember, past, present, and future truths all have to be put together here. Jesus, during his ministry, did give us indication as to how the fall of Satan would occur. This is an unusual scripture, but, and, and, but it really is fascinating when you think about it. Luke chapter 10, verses 17 to 21. The seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subjected to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. So the 70 come back. They've had God's power working through them in the name of Jesus. And they're saying, Master, can you believe this? Even the demons listen to us because of your name. And, and Jesus' response is, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. He's responding to the fact that he knows 
what's going to happen. Remember, before he dies, he says, I'm going to bring you the comforter, and the comforter is going to lead you to all truth and, and all of those things. And he's seeing a, 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 pre, a preview of that. And he's saying, this is what's happening. This is what's going to come, to pe- come, come about. So I, I saw, it, it's like he's looking back and able to say, this is the beginning. And he's kind of looking, putting himself in the future saying, yeah, this is what the fall looks like. See, Satan had not yet fallen. Now, he, he fell from God's side, that's for sure, but he had not fallen from power. Jesus was saying that the pieces were already be, being put in place for his fall from power. Jesus went on to say that the rejoicing should be in their call to heaven and not in any power that they would be given in Jesus' name. So he's talking to them about being humble. He continued, verses uh, 21, uh, uh, verse, I'm sorry, verse 21. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden, meaning to conceal away, these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. See, again, Jesus proclaims that the transforming message of the gospel has been kept from those who were influencers, And this was according to God's will. These verses tell us that this unique approach of the gospel is one ingredient to the ultimate fall of Satan. So this ingredient seems odd and it it seems convoluted. It's like, wait, this doesn't make sense. But wait, it does because we have to see it through God's eyes, not our eyes. So Jonathan, as we look at this, Satan's existence and destruction, what do we have? The simple present truth is that Satan does have power and influence that is clearly allowed by God. Because it was plainly acknowledged by Jesus, we therefore can rest in the fact that however bad it looks, God does have it in his ultimate control. However bad it looks, God has it in his ultimate control. We cannot forget that thought. So Satan is in control, but not really. With this, while this is a relief, it still opens the door to a number of further questions. Acknowledging the degree of power that Satan has raises the question, how did such an evil being get so much power? All right, this, this, this is a powerful question because its answer, its answer will either draw us to marvel at God's wisdom or shake our heads in disbelief at what may look like God's folly. To find the answer, we need to go back before the creation of the earth and examine what the Bible reveals regarding the foundation principles of God's plan. So we are now, we we looked at some present truths here, we're now going to end up looking at some past truths because we need to get a context for what's happening now by looking at what happened before. To know who Satan is now, you need to understand his before. How can we know this? Well, the scriptures give us several clues. So one of the past truths is Satan was identified by a very glorious title. Isaiah fourteen twelve, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. And in the King James Version, star of the morning is translated Lucifer. The Hebrew word means in the sense of brightness, the morning star. Satan was once known as Lucifer, a bright and early light in the heavens. 
Okay, so you have a name, a glorious title, Star of the Morning, and there is great glory in that. There's a lot of things we could get into, but just the idea of the Star of the Morning, it's an early, bright, beautiful light. Here's another past truth. Satan's pre-Satanic life was powerful and harmonious. He was in an honored position before the earth was created. So how do we know this? Well, we go now to the book of Job. God is speaking to Job, and he's challenging Job to fully acknowledge the great power of God. Now, in this next scripture, we know that Job went through tremendous, tremendous suffering. And then he had his comforters, who were not, which, who were not comforting him at all. They're basically saying, curse God and die. You know, you did something wrong. Admit it, admit it, admit it. And Job was like, wait, wait, wait. So God, he finally challenges God. He's like, okay, you know, what's going on here? And he kind of goes before God with a little bit of pride and authority, let's say. And, and here is the conversation that puts him back in his place. And it helps us understand some of these pastures that are so important. So, Jonathan, let's go to Job 38. Uh, let's start. Let's go with verses 3 through 7, but start with 3 to 4. Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth, the literal planet? Tell me if you have understanding. Well, the word translated foundation means to found, to sit down together, that is, settle consult. So God is describing to Job the founding, the design, and the blueprints of planet Earth. I love this because we're dropping in on one of my favorite Bible passages where God has allowed Job to just talk and talk, and God (laughs) finally gives him and us an indication of just how high above us he is. And we read it, we think, well, who does Job think he is challenging God like that about Satan? Oh, wait, we humans do that all the time, and we've been doing it for centuries. And that's one of the reasons why we need to talk about this subject, because we do do it all the time, and we don't realize it. So looking at Job's example really is a great way to look in the mirror. So now let's look at God continuing to answer Job. We've got this basis of laid the foundation of the earth, and we'll comment on that in a moment. But verses 5 to 7, this is, this is moving forward with this very strong conversation. Who set its measurements since you know? Can we pick up on the sarcasm there? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, or who stretched the line on it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Now, morning, morning means morning or break of day. Stars mean a star, figuratively, a prince. So when it's a stretched a line, base is sunk, laid its cornerstone, here's more of that blueprint phase of creating the earth you were talking about. There was harmony, great joy, excitement in the heavenly realm because God was about to create the earth and us to live on it. Think about it. And there was more than one morning star, and they were in perfect harmony with God. In Revelation, Jesus proclaims himself as the morning star. This means there were at least two of them. Revelation twenty two sixteen. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And the Bible identifies only two morning stars, Jesus in his pre-human existence and Lucifer. We assume there are only two morning stars because only two are named. 
And it says these morning stars sang together. These are, think about this, brothers singing in harmony from the beginning of creation. I found a uh, biblical commentary by Vernon McGee, and he said, Satan is a created being. He was created in perfect beauty. If you think of Satan as a creature with horns, a forked tail, and cloven feet, you're wrong. You've been reading the literature of the Middle Ages, which has its origin in Greek mythology that goes back to Asia Minor. So what do we have here? Before we comment on on the, the direct morning star Jesus proclaiming that title of morning star, we have Lucifer proclaimed as this morning star. Satan, his pre-human existence, pre-human, his, his, his early existence when he, was, uh, when he was good, when he was righteous, when he was just, when he was powerful and working God's will. He's a morning star. And then you have Jesus in his pre-human existence as this other morning star. But Jesus in, in, in that proclamation says uh, he's the root of David. Okay, so that means the Lord over David because he's where David came from, though descendant of David. How do you be that? Well, because you're Jesus. And yet he's God's own morning star. He fulfills all of these different roles. So the key thing here, past truth that we're looking at. Satan was identified by a very glorious title. That was the first thing, the morning star and his pre-Satanic life. Julie, you told us, was powerful and harmonious. We can see how it fit. They sang together. There was great power and glory and harmony. And so at the beginning and throughout the creation of the earth, there's harmony, there's great joy, there's excitement in the heavenly realm, and it's unified. And Lucifer was right in the middle of it. God was expanding his own creativity into another realm, a physical realm, where life would be extraordinarily different. And these morning stars were absolutely in harmony. So we're asking the question about Satan having this incredible power. How did such an evil being get such power? Because he was such a good, powerful, harmonious, loving, wonderful being. And that's where that power began to come from. Let's go a little further, Julie. What's next? Well, we've got another past truth. Unfortunately, Lucifer did not stay in harmony with God. Well, when did he begin to turn? Well, for that, we have to look at Isaiah fourteen twelve. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nations. So once the creation of the physical world, the foundation of the earth stage, was underway. Perhaps, and I say perhaps because there's a little conjecture here, we don't exactly know, but we're trying to put the pieces together as best as we can. Perhaps God revealed the significant details of the next phase of his creative plan, the, how, how, how the earth would be inhabited, how it would be overseen or arranged from the heavenly perspective. So we're suggesting that the scriptures are showing us the physical creation and then the sort of the governmental creation of that physical creation in an order. And we see, according to Scripture, at that physical creative stage, there was incredible harmony. That's what the Scriptures say in Job. It tells us plainly. But then there was that change. And Lucifer, Jonathan, as you read, did fall from from glory and from favor. Let's look at Revelation 13.8 for a little bit more to round this out. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. The definition of foundation is founding, figuratively conception, and the world means orderly arrangement, that is, a decoration. So 
we look at the definitions, the founding and the orderly arrangement versus the founding of the physical earth, perhaps, again, a little conjecture, perhaps Lucifer's new job description was here laid out, and perhaps it was here that Lucifer's heart began to turn to darkness. Ezekiel 28, 11 to 14 is very revealing. It refers to Lucifer as the anointed covering cherub in the Garden of Eden. So this tells us that he was actually put in charge of the garden and its inhabitants. This is one of the highest positions of trust at this point. God gave the privilege of oversight of this physical creation to what was one of his most respected and highest beings in all of his creation. We do want to uh, recommend that our listeners take a look at episode 930 called Who is Satan for More, where we trace the glory and the fall of the devil. And it's also hard to talk to children about Satan. So we recommend the CQ Kids video called What Does the Bible Say About Satan? So by looking at past truths, we can see ancient, ancient, ancient history before time began to be counted as far as humanity goes. And we can see incredible glory and honor given to Lucifer and the working together. And then we see a fall somewhere in there that, 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 that creates the, the permission of evil. And we'll, we'll get into that a whole lot more. Now think about this. Jesus, who was the Logos, the word Logos means literally, quote, the word, unquote, in Greek, okay? In the beginning was the word. Uh, he was a willing sacrificial lamb from the moment there was a shadow of doubt cast upon the harmony of God's creativity. In that Revelation scripture, it says the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. Now, that doesn't mean he was literally slain, but he was prepared and ready at that point because God's plan was prepared and ready at that point before anybody knew anything about evil rising anywhere for any reason. God had it in hand. He saw it and he acted on it in a way that we don't even understand. It's so big and so powerful and so glorious and so behind the scenes because that's the way God unfolds his plans. So we need to put it all together and say, wow, there's, there's a lot to this in understanding how it all, all, all works together. Bottom line, God knew ahead of time. All these scriptures show us several of God's clearly defined steps. Let's go over the three past truths. The first one is Satan was identified by a very glorious title. He was one of God's highest creations. The second past truth, Satan's pre-Satanic life was powerful and harmonious. He was one of God's most trusted creations. And the third past truth, Lucifer, unfortunately, did not stay in harmony with God. Great power brings great testing. Lucifer failed this test while the Logos passed it. Let's answer that question, Jonathan, that you asked at the beginning of this segment. How did such an evil being get so much power? And the answer is he wasn't evil. Right. At the beginning. The answer is he was there with the Logos. He was there in a position of authority and grand loyalty and power in God's creation. And so he had that power because of those things. After, who knows, a long period of time, you had that test come into play. And it started on the inside and worked its way to the outside. We're going to get to that in the next segment. We said earlier that Satan's rebellion and fall from God's grace serves God's plan in two ways. Jonathan, what was the first one again? Satan's 
continued existence and influence serve as an undeniable and unavoidable example of the results of rebellion against God's righteousness. So what we're seeing here is his existence and influence, they're an example. They're an example. And if you didn't get that, they're an example of what rebellion actually ends up looking like. It's a pretty big example. It's a very long example, but it's that way on purpose so that God's plan will never have reason to be questioned ever again. So you look at that and say, that's how he got so much power, and God knew it, and God allowed it to be an example. Satan's existence and destruction. Jonathan, go ahead. The mind of God is beyond our comprehension. Obviously, he had a plan that was so comprehensive and detailed that it anticipated and solved any and all challenges to his sovereignty. The key to all of this was God's plan for all of his creatures to have time for full exercise of free will. All of his creatures to have time for full exercise of free will. That's a statement that you have to marinate in your thinking. It has to be able to develop because there's great power and wisdom in that. And it it reminds us, remember several weeks ago, uh, we talked about, does my life have a a motivating vision? And we were talking about the the prophet Habakkuk. And he had an issue looking at the evil around him saying, hey, what's going on with all of this? So Jonathan, let's just remind ourselves of God's answer to Habakkuk when he was so overwhelmed by the evil around him. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. It will not delay, even though you look and say, where is it? I'm waiting. It's because God's timing is perfect. Our timing is restless. We need to keep that all in mind. Thinking about the magnitude and power of Lucifer's previous glory is an eye-opening and tragic observation all at the same time. For how much time is enough time for God to know whether one of his creations will be eternally loyal or rebellious? Both angels and humanity were created as sons of God. A primary lesson for all of his created beings is to learn that unchangeableness that's in God's character. How quickly God knows something is not relevant. What matters is how quickly and fully his created beings are able to know their own hearts and their own minds and learn to be like their Heavenly Father or choose something else. I'm glad you brought up timing because we can only presume Lucifer was with God for eons before he rebelled. One of our CQ contributors asked us this, why is 6,000 years not long enough for humans to understand their mistake? Why was 4,000 years or 1,000 years not long enough for humans to realize that they would rather have good with God than evil with Satan? We've been waiting for centuries. We have. And you look at that and you say, how come it's so long? Well, first of all, God, when he created Adam, said to fill the earth. And that, you know, that's going to take a little bit of time, especially when evil reigns and people die. So you have to have that promise be able to be fulfilled, but you also have to let this free will have its full 
expression in every way. God is patient, and that full expression is much bigger than we'd like it to be because we have such a finite view of things. We'll expand this. This is a really important question. We'll expand this a little bit further as we, as we go. But here's the point. God does. He does want all to be repentant and live. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's a beautiful thought. Not wanting any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. As he is patient toward us, isn't it reasonable that he was and is patient toward his spiritual creation as well? Rick, of course he will have patience with them and with the world of mankind later. He is unchangeable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let's go to a a soundbite. Our first soundbite presents an interesting twist at looking at the problem of evil in a different way. What we're going to hear is part of a larger discussion with the overall question of, does the problem of evil make God unlikely? And this is from Dr. Craig videos on YouTube. Interestingly, uh, I've never forgotten the story, a a true story, about a young university student uh, in Scotland, not long after, well, probably, uh, I suspect, during the Depression years, things were grim. And he knocked on the door, uh, it was open, of a small cottage that was opened. Uh, There was a returned serviceman from the First World War. And when he realised the young man wanted to talk to him about God, he said, go away. He said, Hmm. I was in the trenches in France. And I stopped believing in God when I saw all that evil. And the young man uh, said to him, I respect that that must have been terrible. uh, And I certainly won't pest you. But can I just make the observation that I wonder if I'd been there, I might not have stopped believing in man rather than stopped believing (laughs) in God. Yeah. And the old man looked at him, tears welled up in his eyes, and he said, you better come in. We need to talk about this. Yeah. It's an interesting take on evil. I, I sometimes think that one of our problems is that we're not self-reflective enough. And that's a, a powerful nugget point. We are not self-reflective enough. We are so willing to look and say, God should, God should, why doesn't God, how about God, where is God, and all of that, when we have control over what's right in front of us. So isn't it, why shouldn't it be, where is Rick? Why doesn't Rick? How come Rick? What's the matter with Rick? How come Rick doesn't? We need to be able to reflect on ourselves and say, how am I showing what I think God should show just in my tiny, 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 tiny little way? War is big, complicated, but it's often a distant word. Uh, For this man, it became personal enough to be faith ending. And we might not fight in a war, but all of us know someone who died too soon, like cancer, taking an individual who is kind-hearted and generous to others, or gosh, we see on TV all the time, the random shootings that we hear about every day, and our hearts hurt, and we start blaming God without thinking through the bigger picture. Yeah, and you know what, I have a, I have a, it's a hard story to tell, but it's a true story, and it just happened recently. My, one of my daughters uh, was very overwhelmed by this because bottom line is her friend has a friend who was at the home of the person 
that I'm going to tell you the story about. And this was in, they were at that home two weeks ago. What happened was we have a mother who had three children, um, I think a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and, a, and you know, several-month-old. And she was suffering from massive, massive post, uh, postpartum depression. And her husband um, left for half an hour to go pick up some food. Now, he was working from home. They knew there was trouble, but it was bigger than anybody understood. When he came back, the children had been killed. They, she killed her children and then tried to kill herself. And you look at that and you say, God, why? What, how can you cope? And my daughter was overwhelmed by this. She's a mother of a two-year-old and a four-year-old. And she's, she's like, bury me now. I, I could not even fathom such things. And so you look at that and we do wonder, how come it's allowed to be? Well, let's remember the message to Habakkuk. God said, the vision is coming. And you look at that and say, that doesn't help right now. And I get it. I get it. But understand, this is not the end. This is not the end. There is a resurrection. And every single human being will find a new life because Jesus gives it to them. It doesn't matter what their experience was. And we have to take hold of that and say, I want to be righteous now. I want to be godly now. And I want to be able to give hope to other people in the face of such dire personal tragedy and that's what this is and it was heartbreaking i sat at at the sunday dinner table with my daughter you know and and she's crying and i'm crying and i'm trying to trying to comfort her but what we what the bottom line was god is overall and those children will come back and for them it'll be an instant the next thing they know is life a beautiful life so we really need to put this all in perspective it's hard but god's got it in hand Let's go, Julie. Let's go to another past truth. What a horrific story. It is. Okay, past truth. Uh, Lucifer's fall was a growing, festering, and deadly thought process. Let's look at Isaiah 14, 12 to 15. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to the grave, to the recesses of the pit. So you have a lot going on in the scripture. And the bottom line of what's happening here is you have the deadly spread of sinful thought. Let's, let's review that. So let's go back over it. You have said in your heart. It always begins in the heart when we entertain the dark thoughts. I will ascend into the heavens. He was already arranged to be God's earthly representative. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. He was already one of the (laughs) stars of God. I will sit in the mount of congregation in the uttermost parts of the north. Where God abides. Oof. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Above the influence of God's presence with man. Listen to this lack of humility. I will make myself like the Most High. Not replacing, but rivaling the Most High. So what do we have? Lucifer was looking for a dominion. He was looking for power and authority, and he was looking to usurp the rights of his creator, who he was honored to represent and work for. 
I mean, think about that. We don't know how long these thoughts built quietly inside of Lucifer, but it's reasonable to assume that they were there for a very, very, very long time, starting out very small and working their way into a place where action finally would take place. I think about our own temptations, you know, often they're step-by-step, tiny little moves in the wrong direction. Before you know it, we're way off course and not where we're supposed to be. So it seems like Lucifer was considering, plotting, turning over in his mind the possibilities until it was just too far to turn back. We don't see any indication of his considering his exit strategy because he should have known that God would never have allowed this rebellion of evil to continue forever. But that's why he didn't have an exit strategy, because he chose not to know that and chose to go his own way. And he chose to have others follow him as well. And the angels who followed Satan were also given time to develop their choices and see the results of those choices. Second Peter 2.4 tells us this. And this is from the Weymouth version. For God did not spare angels when they had sinned, but hurling them down to Tartarus, consigned them to caves of darkness keeping them in readiness for judgment. Now, Tartarus represents the Earth's atmosphere. Remember, the devil is called the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2.2. These fallen angels are separated from the holy angels. The sinful angels were cast out of God's heavenly light into a condition of darkness and limitation. So they're in this condition of limitation. And again, Julie, just like you said with Satan, well, you should have known. Well, maybe you didn't know, and now you've got some opportunity to think about it because now you've been locked out of access to the creator of all things. And that, I mean, you look at it and say, well, that would get my attention. Would it? Would I be, if I had that power, would I be smart enough or would I be too proud? You know, that's the, that's the question we always have to ask here. We can look at others and say, oh, come on, wake up. What about me? What about me? And you see, so angels were even given opportunity to work through these things. Let's go back to Adam. Adam sinned. We know that. And he was subject to death. And that sounds like a a no-brainer, but there's some details here that are really important. Genesis 2, 16 to 17. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Now, Adam lived 930 years, as we see in Genesis 5.5. Now, remember, we read in 2 Peter 3.8, Peter told us a day to the Lord is a thousand years. So Adam did die within the day. So he lived this long time after his sin. The question you have to ask yourself is, why? Why did God let him live all that time? If he said you sin, you're going to die. Doesn't sound like, okay, you know, right here, you should die. Well, think about it. God fulfilled the blessings that he had given to Adam before his sin. God is a God of his word. Listen to this in Genesis 1, 27 and 28. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So those were all blessings that God promised to Adam before his sin. And he allowed him to fulfill those blessings. God said, here, have these things. It's reasonable to assume that God also fulfilled the blessings he had given to Lucifer. 
I'm giving you a power and authority. I'm giving it to you. And he let him run through that. Now, he messed it up badly, but God is a God of his word, and he always has the end result in his hand. God would let Lucifer rule, just like Adam was able to live until time would expire. So we've got another soundbite here. This next soundbite is from a presentation called Why Does God Allow Evil by GotQuestions.org. And in it, they bring up a really good point. They say what a lot of people think would be an easy solution for evil. God simply stops all of these awful things that we fear. God could compensate for people's evil actions through supernatural intervention 100% of the time. God would stop a drunk driver from causing an automobile accident. God would stop a lazy construction worker from doing a substandard job on a house that would later cause grief to the homeowners. God would stop a father who is addicted to drugs or alcohol from doing any harm to his wife, children, or extended family. God would stop gunmen from robbing convenience stores. God would stop high school bullies from tormenting the brainy kids. God would stop thieves from shoplifting. And yes, God would stop terrorists from flying airplanes into buildings. While this solution sounds attractive, it would lose its attractiveness as soon as God's intervention infringed on something we wanted to do. We want God to prevent horribly evil actions, but we are willing to let lesser evil actions slide not realizing that those lesser evil actions are what usually lead to the greater evil actions. The, the, the thinking in this is really, really profound. And to be able to say, yeah, we want God to stop those things, that's obvious. But where do you draw the line? And that's where humanity, that's where we fall. That's where we falter. That's where we lose our bearings, if you will. Jonathan, you asked at the beginning of this segment, how much time is enough time for God to know whether one of his creations will be eternally loyal or rebellious? So now that we've talked about it, what do we think now? Well, the answer to that question is that it's not, uh, it's the amount of time necessary for evil to fully bloom, to fully blossom, and for the free choice of spiritual and physical beings to fully be exhausted in that context. Why does that have to be? Because that way there's never going to be a question as to what's good and what's not. Yeah, but wouldn't God know within two seconds if someone's going to rebel or not? God would know within two seconds. He'd know within a half a second. That's not relevant. What's relevant is the time that it takes for us to know, to live, to experiment, to choose, to decide, and to follow through for us and the spiritual beings as well. So it's not wondering how long it takes God to figure it out. It's, it's allowing his beings to understand and make choices so they can learn something incredibly valuable. So Satan's existence and destruction, Jonathan, what do we have? Past, present, and as we soon will see, future truths all show us that God allows his spiritual and physical beings time to develop their chosen directions. He allows evil to develop as he also allows righteousness to develop. God then allows his creatures to see the results of their choices. He allows his creatures to see the results of their choices. This is not just about allowing it to happen. He's allowing those involved to understand the consequences of all the things that are happening. See, God is so much bigger and wiser than than we, we can ever be. Once again, we see the power, foresight, and wisdom of God come into play. 
he really does have it all in his control. So, God gives ample time for our freedom of choice and our understanding of those choices. But what about Satan's destruction? Well, we've clearly seen that all of God's plans and purposes unfold in his time frame, which is usually much longer than any of us anticipate. However, once God's timing is achieved, his actions are clear and dramatic. He will do exactly what he has said and the way that he said it. All that we need to do is to be patient and comply. We need to have loyalty. We need to understand. We need to be striving toward godliness. Because remember, God is always in control. Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, God's always in control. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel toward together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart, and fetters are shackles for the feet, their leg cuffs, and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. You know, you look at this, and, and really the Lord's looking down and saying, Oh, such children, such children. And we think we're all smart. And just like a small child thinks they really know, but you know the, the parent says, yeah, it's okay, it's okay. You'll, you'll figure it out. That's what he's doing. And, and he has control. And he allows this to happen with a purpose. Evil Satan is a tool in God's hands for ultimate good and righteousness. Let's not forget that. One more scripture on this, Proverbs nineteen twenty one. Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. It is irrefutable. It will stand. It will take its place exactly when he knows it's time, when he's given everything enough time to develop so everyone has the opportunity to see without any questions. Let's finish that thought from gotquestions.org. We left off on how, if we're being honest, we really don't want God to intervene on our lesser evil inclinations. Should God only stop actual sexual affairs, or should he also block our access to pornography, or end all inappropriate but not yet sexual relationships? Should God stop true thieves, or should he also stop us from cheating on our taxes? Should God only stop murder, or should he also stop the lesser evil actions done to people that lead them to commit murder? Should God only stop the acts of terrorism, or should he also stop the indoctrination that transformed a person into a terrorist? Okay, so now we're getting personal. <laughs> we yeah, want right. what we want because we like it, but we want condemnation for everything outside of our own box, and that's just hypocritical. So if God should stop all evil, then it needs to start with us first. And that's, that's the conundrum here for humanity. We want it to be a certain way as long as I can have my way. And that's not the way good and evil work. And, and this is why God's plan is so big and so comprehensive and he's so patient with its unfolding. So now we, we've looked at several past truths. We looked at several present truths. Jonathan, what's next? A future truth. God will have righteousness rule and all of humanity will be a part of it. Isaiah 45, 22 to 24. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, 
The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him, and all who were angry at him will be put to shame. I love the way this says it. The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. I have sent it out, and when it's time, there is nothing in heaven or earth that will stop my God's plan from unfolding. Uh, Continuing with another possible solution to evil from gutquestions.org. Third, another choice would be for God to judge and remove those who choose to commit evil acts. The problem with this possibility is that there would be no one left, for God would have to remove us all. We all sin and commit evil acts. See Romans chapter 3 verse 23, Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 20, and 1 John chapter 1 verse 8. While some people are more evil than others, where would God draw the line? Ultimately, all evil causes harm to others. And it was a little hard to hear. He said, while some people are more evil than others, where would God draw the line? And this really feeds into our title question, why doesn't God just destroy Satan? There's a lot of considerations to get to the point where the attractiveness for the choice of evil is greatly reduced. And we're grateful that God has a plan for all of this. We are. And and that's the point. The attractiveness for evil. It is attractive because as these sound bites demonstrated, you know, you look at the big things. Yeah, God, get rid of that. Oh, but don't touch this. Yeah, but God, get rid of that and those people. But leave me alone. Okay, God, wipe out all evil. Oops, wait, that means me. So, (laughs) you know. We see that the permission of evil, the allowance for Satan to stay alive is important. It's a tool. It's a tool of righteousness. It's a tool for God's plan to unfold. Understand, there will be salvation by just and merciful inclusion for all of humanity. I said all of humanity, and I meant all of humanity. And why? Because Romans 5.18 tells us. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. I love God's plan. The allness shines through. No one is forgotten. Thank you, Jesus. And just in case you didn't catch that, that one transgression was Adam. And that resulted in condemnation. And one act of righteousness, that was Jesus dying on the cross, that resulted in life to all men, the opportunity for life. A ransom for all. Life for a life. Perfect human life for a perfect human life. That's what we have here. This salvation by just and merciful inclusion reveals God's vast opportunities for all of his human creation. So now we're going to look at opportunities for his human creation. We've been looking at the the difficulties of sin and destruction and trauma and death and horrible, horrible things, but there are now opportunities here. 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 6, let's do 1 to 2 and then pause. And this is from the King James Version. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all goodness and honesty. So the apostle is starting out talking to Timothy, saying, be respectful of the people around you. You know, be respectful because we want to be able to be blessed by God with the opportunity to do godly things 
in an ungodly world. Now, now listen carefully to these next verses, verses 3 to 6 of 1 Timothy chapter 2. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So you have a powerful statement here, several powerful statements by the Apostle. This part of salvation is God's intention, a ransom for all to be testified in due time. And there's no calling attached to it. Do you notice it says he, he desires, he intends all men to be saved, not just a few, the allness that Jonathan you were talking about, and come to a knowledge of the truth. It, understand this is not a calling this is a gift this is a free gift and everybody's on the receiving end of this particular gift you you often hear people today ask are you saved but if you listen carefully to the order here it says god will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth the mediator jesus who gave himself a ransom for all mediates between god and man after they're resurrected in the future kingdom on earth and a mediator sits between two opposing parties. God is at odds with humanity because they're still sinful after their resurrection. His ransom guaranteed we're all saved from death. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 22. But then Earth's billions are going to need to learn about God and his ways of righteousness in order to continue to live. All those people that lived before Jesus even was born. So for many, it's going to be their very first opportunity to hear the name of Jesus. And for more on this, we recommend listening to episode 1231, What If I'm Not Good Enough for Heaven? Uncovering the Destiny of Humanity's Billions Who Don't Go to Heaven. So what we have is this salvation for all. Now, we want, we're, and we want to make sure that we understand and that, that, that our listeners understand that we're not saying, okay, you know, going to heaven, that's not part of it because everybody's in the same boat. It's, there, there's a difference here. This salvation by just and merciful inclusion for all that we've been talking about shows us that those who are invited, those who are invited to follow Jesus and follow him are actually specially privileged. Listen carefully to the next verse, First Thess, uh, First Timothy, rather, uh, chapter 4, verse 10. For it is for those who labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Another future truth? From the moment that Lucifer proved himself thoroughly disloyal, God has planned for his restraint and destruction. And so we want to look at that, that restraint and destruction. And remember, as we look at the idea of good and evil, who should decide what's good and what's evil? It's all in the hands of God. And when we as human beings, for instance, try and decide what's good and evil, take a look at the world around you and take a look at the foundations that people stand on and say, wow, we are really messed up in our attempts to describe and, and label good and evil. We need God's labeling in his time, in his plan. Well, later, after the resurrection, we're going to see God restrain Satan so his plan will be able to continue to move forward. Revelation 21 through 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. 
and he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. He restrains him. He pulls him back. This is part of the process of Satan's destruction. So you see that restraining first. Then we see how God's plan brings all darkness and all evil to an end during that, what that scripture talked about, during that thousand-year day of judgment, not a 24-hour day, but a thousand-year day of judgment. Not now. It's not now. It's then. It's, it's a future process that we have yet to see unfold. And here's the culmination, Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Brimstone is an old-fashioned word for sulfur. Sulfur is, uh, interestingly, one of the most volatile elements on earth. It makes a fire burn hotter. It creates highly toxic and flammable gases, as well as more heat and smoke. So when brimstone is added to fire in the symbol, it intensifies this thought right. of destruction. It's really interesting because, Jonathan, if you kept reading to verse 14 of Revelation 20, it goes on to say that this lake of fire is the second death, a death from which there is no recovery, no resurrection, because Jesus died once for all. Let's talk about that tormented part, though. It says tormented day and night forever. That's a verb that scripturally can mean the act of testing or revealing one's true core. I looked up Thayer's Greek-English lexicon, and the definition includes to test metals by the touchstone. It's a special black stone that's used to test purity of gold or silver by the color of the streak produced on it when you rub it by a metal. And a stone is tested to get the results. So here we've got this lake of fire as second death. There's no torture. It's just non-existence because we can see in the ages long revealing process of the sins and corruption of the devil and those who followed him. Their actions are, have been tested. They've been revealed even after their destruction. So it's going to provide an eternal lesson. Speaking of destruction, obviously this destroys any idea of Satan running an eternally burning hell. And why would God give him the desire of his dreams to live forever, <laughs> eternally torturing humans and no end game and no purpose? That makes no sense. God wouldn't permit such an evil act. Yeah, we said Satan's rebellion and fall from God's grace serves God's plan in two ways. And here's the second way again. Satan's continued existence and influence serve as the basis for testing each and every one of God's created beings. Every intelligent created being will ultimately choose to stay loyal to God's righteousness or ultimately choose to follow the darkness of Satan. There's so many details that need to be taken care of for this to be a permanent lesson. And so when we look at this and we look back over this whole lesson and the whole conversation about Satan, you can see how his life, his evil, his actions, his longevity are teaching tools in the hand of God. And they will show us unequivocally 
good versus evil. Now, why go through all of this? Why spend so much time and so much effort proving evil? Because that's essentially what God's doing. He's proving evil. He's showing you what it looks like. Why? John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. God allows all of this because he loves us and because his plan is bigger than we can imagine. Jonathan, finally, Satan's existence and destruction. God is always in control. Sometimes that control is seen in his granting blessing for those loyal to him. Sometimes it is seen in his standing in the background and letting free will on all levels take its course. Sometimes it is seen in his taking complete control and asserting his will. Satan was blessed, is rebellious, and will be destroyed. God's plan of righteousness and harmony will prevail. And that's the point. God's plan will prevail. So why doesn't God just destroy Satan? Because Satan is a tool in the hand of Almighty God to show the world, to show everyone, to show spiritual beings what evil is and the consequences. Because the consequences, if you haven't noticed, are never good. So what we want to do is we want to understand that God does have it in control. He will destroy Satan and every human being who has ever suffered from any form of evil whatsoever will be raised from the dead because of Jesus and his ransom. This is why God allows it. Think about it. Folks, we love hearing from our listeners. We welcome your feedback and questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Coming up in our next episode, What is Truth? Talk to you then.